We're going to be reading this morning from Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. And Mark's going to be preaching on verses 13 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would now, by your Spirit, open blinded eyes, unlock deaf ears, and you would birth new people into your kingdom in this next 40 minutes. I'm praying that you would help us to feel the weight of our deadness, that against the black drop of that canvas we could see the beautiful jewel, the gleaming, sparkling jewel of the gospel, and we could see it in a way that is clear, and compelling and calling so that we could be people who live like who we really are. I ask you to help me to make this text clear and to just simply unleash the Word. I pray that you would help us to know how to make this work in our lives. And I pray that the enemy would no longer hold a man or a woman captive to his devices, but instead today you would, Jesus, by force, bring the gospel in fresh and new ways to our hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen. There are times when in the study of the Bible we come to particular key ideas or thoughts that are so important so critical and so central that if you were to miss it, you would not understand the message of the entire Scriptures. You could think of it like a master key, a key that unlocks a host of other ideas, a a key that is so foundational, so critical, that you have to understand it. You just have to get the truth. And the key that we look at this morning and the truth that you have to get is this, that Jesus moves people from death to life. Say that with me. Jesus moves people from death to life. Now, this is more than just a statement about what happens when you die. You might say, well, I I know that that Jesus is the one who causes people to live eternally. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an idea that there is a spiritual reality of death and life that's present in this room, even though everyone in this room is physically alive. It is the idea that there's another spiritual reality that's taking place while you're here and in the midst of your heart that you may not be able to see, but make no mistake about it, it is no less real. It is the fact that there are dead people and there are alive people in this room. And there are often spiritual or other realities that take place in 
a room that we might not even realize. Let me illustrate this for you this way. How many of you are right-handed people? Let me see your hands. Beautiful. Hands down. How many of you are left-handed people? Good. How many of you just plain clumsy, right? (laughs) How many of you are ambidextrous? Any of those? Okay, a few of you. Good. So you may not have known that sitting next to someone, that they were right-handed or left-handed. You may find out as they start to take notes, right? But while you came into the auditorium, all of us were alive and are alive, but there's a reality that there are some left-handed people and there are some right-handed people. When it comes to the idea of a spiritual reality, I want you to understand that there are dead people and there are alive people from a spiritual position, and that reality is no less real than the fact of left-handed and right-handed people, except for the fact that the difference between right-handed and left-handedness is minor But the difference between being spiritually dead and spiritually alive is the difference between heaven and hell. Let me be very clear and graciously blunt. It is that to those of you this morning who are spiritually dead, you stand this very moment in danger of the judgment of God and an eternal destiny in hell because of your spiritual dead condition. That is the message of the Bible that diagnoses our condition, and then beautifully offers hope to those who understand it, that there is life in Christ. That's the message of the Bible, that Jesus takes people from death, spiritual death, and moves them into spiritual life. And therefore, there are two questions that all of us must deal with. First, am I dead or alive spiritually? Am I dead or alive spiritually? And secondly, if I'm alive spiritually, then what does this mean Or secondly, if I'm dead spiritually, what does that mean? And those two questions are critical, not only to the understanding of what the Bible is talking about throughout Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, but it is also critical because that determines not only your eternal destiny, it also determines presently your ability to live a free life. A life where Jesus comes and takes control. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Colossians called The Core. We're in a section called Jesus-Centered Thinking, and I'm trying to help us understand how the Bible wants us to think, how the Bible wants us to see ourselves and to see us in light of the position that we have in Christ. And so we're talking about spiritual realities that we can't see but are certainly real. We're talking about position in Christ, by Him, with Him, through Him, and how that affects us and how we live every single day. And this morning, we're going to shed some light on the idea of spiritual spiritual life and death, and how that relates to our position in Jesus. In order to first understand this idea, we have to deal with the rather heavy subject of what it means to be spiritually dead. And I'm going to warn you that if you've come this morning expecting to simply have a good time in the teaching of the Word, which we often do, this next section will not be that. In fact, it is a dark section but a section that is nonetheless extremely important. Because in order to understand the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ, we have to get the full sense of the black backdrop upon which the gospel is presented. In a word, it is that we are dead. Verse 13 highlights three things about spiritual deadness. It identifies for us that first, it's a real problem. Second, it's linked to transgressions. And third, it is characterized by spiritual alienation from God. So first, 
It is a real position. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses. So Paul is writing to a group of believers who've made the decision to receive Christ, thereby moving them from spiritual death to spiritual life, and he reminds them of their former spiritual position. And the spiritual position, as he describes it, is you were spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses. What does this mean? It means that all people from birth... Their basic and natural position, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. We are alive physically, but from a spiritual standpoint, we are dead. We are incapacitated. We are the living dead. And the only thing, according to the Bible, that can overcome this hopeless position of spiritual deadness is the person and work of Christ. This real spiritual position is natural to every human being. You were born this way. You didn't become spiritually dead. You were born spiritually dead. That's the idea. Now, all throughout this message, I'm going to give you probably, I think it's 16 or 15 cross-references. I'm going to read them. They're listed on the screen behind me. I'd encourage you to write them down. And the reason there are so many in this message is because I don't want you to try and somehow undercut the, the, the power of this idea by saying, well, that's just Colossians. This is not Colossians. Listen, spiritual dead position is Bible. And I'm going to show you that over and over and over. And the reason why that's so important is that if you don't get spiritual death right, you won't get spiritual life right. And I'm also believing strongly within my heart that understanding the spiritual dead thing is critical to joy and, and happiness and delight and, and worship. It, it, understanding it just floods your soul with grace as you understand what God saved you from in Christ. So this is heavy, but it's... Not hopeless. Ephesians 2.1 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the good news is you got lots of company. We're all dead. We're all born that way. The problem is, is that you did nothing for that to happen. You were simply born, and I'll explain why that is. So, fundamentally, our position is we were born alive physically, but dead spiritually. The second thing the text tells us is not only that we were dead, but it also says you were dead in your trespasses. Some of you might read that and say, okay, so that means that when I sinned the first time, then I became dead. Or when did the spiritual death happen? The Bible clearly tells us that, no, it's not that you sinned and then you became a sinner. Rather, you were a sinner and therefore you sin. It's an important distinction. We don't sin and then become sinners. We sin because we are sinners. It means that the natural inclination of the human heart is bent towards sinful behavior, which is why as a parent you know you never had to teach your child to be selfish. You work hard to train them up and to teach them to be kind. That's the battle. It's not a battle to say, just think more of yourself. That's, that's never the issue. You don't think enough of yourself, honey. Come on, work harder at it. The reverse is you're not, the whole home doesn't revolve around you, sweetheart. That's the battle. And the reason is, is because Adam's sin 
caused every person to be born spiritually dead. Listen to Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. How did we all sin in Adam? Well, when sin came in Adam and Eve... In the midst of that garden, sin, sin spread to the entire created order, and therefore everyone born from them possessed by definition and nature a sinful inclination. Therefore, we are born sinful. And the Bible tells us then that the transgressions that we do, and by the way, the word transgressions means deliberate acts of disobedience, It means particular ways in which we attempt to disobey. Those things that we do are an expression of our spiritual deadness, not simply things that create that position. In other words, I sin because I'm a sinner. You could also translate this phrase, you were dead in your trespasses, as this. You were spiritually dead, being characterized by your transgressions. So what happens is that my transgressions only verify my real position of my heart. That the things that I do, the way I try and fill my heart with all sorts of things and rebel against God's rule, all of those things are just an expression of a heart that by nature and definition is set in hostility against God. So Paul says this is a real spiritual position. It's linked to transgressions. And the effect is that the mind that is set, Paul says in Romans 8, 7, that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. So the position that all people are in is a real position of spiritual death that results in transgressions, and the effect of that is hostility to God. So understand that the sins that we do are not just little indiscretions or mistakes or a grievous error. They are things that we take up and say to God, You don't rule! I do! The problem of our hearts is us. It is our desire to be out underneath the rule of God to try and usurp His authority. And so we take our greed and our covetousness and our lust and our pride and we use those things as our way to shake our fist at God and say, You will not be my God. The effect of this then is spiritual alienation. The result of the spiritual dead position born and then lived out in transgressions is alienation. The text describes this as the uncircumcision of your flesh. Last week we said that circumcision was the sign of being part of God's covenant community. And to be uncircumcised meant you were outside of the people of Israel. You're outside of God's family. In the New Testament, it has the idea of a symbol of spiritual alienation. So Paul says, You were uncircumcised in your flesh, meaning you were outside of God's family. So you were separated from Him. So spiritual alienation then is the result. Meaning that spiritually dead people are alienated from God in the same way that an uncircumcised person was alienated from the people of Israel. So to be alienated means that I'm separated, and even more so than that, there's effects on my mind and my heart. Listen to what Ephesians 4.18 says. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. 
Here's what it means. It means that our hearts are naturally hard, that we think we know what we should do. And the, 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 the reality of how lost our hearts are is that God, by His Spirit, has to break through and convince us that we can't do it on our own. And man is relentless in his desire to justify himself and find why he's better than other people and to give all these reasons why you're the exception to the rule. That's a hardness of heart. It means that that you are unwilling to see the reality of your condition. And by the way, the enemy loves to have it this way. Satan desires to keep as many people in this position as he can. Here's why. Because Satan wants to use you as a statement of his rebellion against God. He wants to take as many people as possible with him, even though his doom is sure. He wants to take as many people with him to hell. Why? Because he loves himself and hates God that much that he wants to take as many people with him as possible as a statement to God about how much he would like to be his own God. So he uses you, if you're lost, as a pawn to say to God, you don't rule me, and look at all these people that I've got who follow me. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, meaning that they hear the simple truth of John 3.16. They hear the simple truth that Jesus saves. They, they hear the gospel message and it goes in one ear and out the other. That their hardened heart says, no, that can't be true or that doesn't apply to me. I'm not that bad. And the fact of the matter is spiritual alienation is a condition that by definition, because of being spiritually dead, must be assaulted and attacked and can only be conquered by the person and work of Christ. So here's who we are. A darkened mind, blinded eyes, hard hearts, filled with transgressions, hostile to God, natural born sinners, spiritually alienated, separated, and damned. These are the words that describe every single human being's spiritual starting point. Listen to me, you don't start neutral. You don't start like a blank slate. Instead, the Bible says you were born sinful, and because of that, you're dead. As dead as roadkill on 96th Avenue. Unable to get up. Unable to rise. Unable to have life breathe into you. As dead, as dead, as dead can be. There's no life in a dead animal. There's no life in a dead person. And from a spiritual standpoint, there is not one ounce of life in you. You are the living dead, lifeless, no power, and no hope in you. We are the walking dead. We are the living dead. We are like Lazarus, who's in the grave for three days. And I love how the King James says, and he stinketh. (laughs) Right. That's who we are. We stinketh. Our sins are so bad, our, our, our plight so awful, that unless Jesus says, Mark, come forth, there's no hope. Our only hope is for God through Jesus Christ to give us life. John 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, a man must be born again. That little phrase, born again, has a lot of graffiti on it in the last 40 years. I'd like to redeem it. 
I'd like to call it back because it's a great phrase. Jesus himself used it. To be born again means that God by his spirit gives you life and power and spiritual birth where you could not have done it yourself. It means that you have no ability in and of yourself to clean up your own act, to forgive your own sins, to self-atone. You'll never be able to do enough. The only hope for our spiritual condition is for someone else to take our place and for the power of Christ to conquer that which we could not conquer on our own. Dead people cannot produce life. They are dead. John 1.12 or 113 says, These were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who by His Spirit causes this new birth to take place. That spiritual deadness means that our only hope is Jesus. It means that there are some here today and God is graciously opening your spiritual eyesight for you to be able to see your hearing this in a new way. You're understanding the spiritual death that you're presently in and your spiritual heart is beginning to be softened and my plea with you would be to not resist the gracious call of God that today you would realize that your soul is in jeopardy, your life is a mess and you're on the road to Christless eternity in hell and the only solution is for you to run to Christ. He's the only one who can clean you up. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one who can conquer your spiritually dead heart. We are born this way, beloved. I don't have to teach my daughter how to sin. Last evening, she's riding her new bike with training wheels. It is the epitome of idolatry in her life. And a neighbor boy is on her bike, and although she's on his bike, she sees him on her bike, and she doesn't make the connection that they're sharing, and instead she gets off her bike, and like a linebacker is running at him, saying, my bike, my bike, my bike, grabs his arm and twists as hard as she can, and she's going, I intervene because I thought she was going to kill him. This is a two-year-old with rage in her heart kicking her feet and throwing her hands and pointing at him as though he sinned horribly against her because he is on her bike. Nobody taught her that. That's a part of her fabric. And we are working our tails off to try and orient that heart and point her to Christ and help her to see eventually that she will need to receive Christ because he's the only one who can conquer that wicked heart that expresses itself in outright rage as a two-year-old and as you get older you learn to bottle that up but that heart is still the same inside of every human being it is relentless in its desire to be filled with self and to get its own way and to do what you want because life's about you right Wrong, And there are going to be millions of people in hell who were convinced that they were the exception to the rule. This is heavy stuff. This spiritual death is the backdrop upon which then the gospel gleams. And the Bible over and over presents this dark picture in order so that the glorious truth of the gospel could burn even brighter. And so, let me show you now the hope. Jesus moves people from death to life. That's what happens. It is that He takes those who were powerless, 
Those who, sure, would receive Christ and by faith put their trust in Him, but at the foundation of their life are powerless for any spiritual thing to happen apart from the movement of Christ in their hearts. And what He does is He births them again from death then into life. Look at verse 13b. You were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. We're going to come to the fact that death to life happens by Jesus making us alive. But first, I want to take the second half of the verse and talk about forgiveness because that's the means by which then we are made alive. In order to understand how life happens, you have to understand that sins had to be paid for. Your sins had to be paid for. My sins had to be paid for. There's no life, no justice by just God saying, ah, let's just forget about it. The Bible tells us that God can be both just and justifier, Romans 3, in that He had all sins paid for in Christ. So God can be just and justifier because of the work of the cross. So what does God do through the cross? He graciously cancels your sin debt. That's what He does. He takes the debt of sin that you owed because of who you were, because of who you are, and because of what you've done. He takes all of that and He forgives it. The word in the Greek is charizomai. It's the form of a word for grace. Charis. Charizomai. It means this. It means to treat graciously. The idea is that God chooses to show mercy and grace even though His people didn't deserve any of it. Don't you think for a moment that you deserve the cross? (laughs) Don't you think for a moment that God's got a really great catch with you? My, how you're going to help advance the kingdom. You ought to be thankful you could breathe and think that horrible, sinful thought, let alone advance the kingdom. Uh, God doesn't need you. It wasn't simply because of your worth or my worth that that somehow He loves me because I'm a treasured, precious possession. Am I a treasured, precious possession? Maybe, but that's not what He said His love on me. I am a conduit of God's glory. God bounces the glory of His own self off of my wicked heart and shows to the world how gracious He is by saving me of my sins. Redemption is about God, not me. It's about His glory. It's about His beauty. It's about Him displaying to the world how marvelous and gracious He is. It's about grace. text goes on to say that He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. The record of debt is the record of all the crimes that we've ever committed, all the sins we've ever done, it's the same thing as having a rap sheet. Same thing as having demerits. Demerits. How many of you went to a school that gave demerits? Let me see your hand. 
Okay? So my parents own a condominium and the security cards give out demerits. And, uh, yeah, so my kids' first year, we got a lot of them, right? They're like, what's your room number? We're like, oh, no, yeah, so give them the number. And at the end of the week, they print out the financial bill and the demerits. We're like, whoa, look at all those crimes. It's, it's points on a license. I remember the conversation that I had with my dad when I was turning 16 years old, and he said, Mark, I will pay for the insurance on your vehicle until you get your first ticket. And after that, the state of Michigan adds points to your license, and the insurance company uses that as the basis for increasing premiums. So the minute you get a ticket, you'll have two fines, one from the state of Michigan and two from State Farm, because the bill's yours after the increase. I was listening, right? <laughs> so it's, it's a rap sheet, it's a record, it's a, it's a list of all of the things that we have done wrong. And the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ is God took all of your violations of His law, all the things that you've done that you would die if other people knew about. And He takes that record that would have been used to condemn you, and He cancels it. He expunges your record. He wipes it clean and says, in effect, this person has done no wrong. And the reason that amazing grace is amazing is because you know what should be in your record. Third, the cancellation came not only by grace and by cancellation, but it came by force. Look at it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. Set aside is not just like you take it and you set aside, like please pass the salt. That's not what it means. This word has a stronger sense to it. It can refer to the removal by force, even deadly force. So get this. Here's your record of indebtedness, the crimes that you've committed against God, all of the moral indiscretions, your violations of God's law, the thing that keeps you up at night and makes you feel guilty. Those things, that list, by, the Bible tells us that Jesus, by force of His death, takes that thing and casts it aside. All the things that the enemy loves to use to accuse you to the Father, Jesus takes and removes it. In fact, Paul goes on to say, nailing it to the cross. Two possible meanings here of nailing it to the cross. The first could be that Jesus, He was nailed to the cross, so Jesus, by His death, by being nailed to the cross, takes your sin debt away, so Jesus becomes the thing that was nailed. So the it of nailing it to the cross is nailing Jesus to the cross, which means that my crimes nailed Christ to the cross. The other meaning could be that like the placard above Jesus' head that said, this is the king of the Jews, crimes that a person committed were listed above their head. And the other meaning of this word, phrase, could be that the placard above Christ's head was your sins. Either way, the point is the same, is it not? It is that Jesus, in His death, canceled my sin debt by the force of His own death. That Jesus attacked my sins and removed them away 
paving the way for me to be forgiven so that when I come and ask the Father to forgive me of my sins, I do so not on the basis of my own merit, but by the basis of Jesus so that I prayed when I was 13, something like this, Lord Jesus, I can't cleanse my own heart. You have to do it. Please come in and take over my soul. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. It's grace, it's canceled, it's by force, and the result, notice this in verse 15, the result is victory. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. It indicates that the spiritual rulers and authorities did not surrender. Jesus conquered them and He he shamed them. How did He shame them? It's because the cross of Christ canceled the basis of Satan's accusations. It exposed Satan for what he is. A roaring lion with a loud roar. But he's an accuser. He's a deceiver. And Jesus declares in his death that these people who have received me are no longer held in his grip. Satan no longer owns them. They now belong to Christ. And the result was that Jesus, by His death, burial and resurrection, disarms Satan and takes away from him the one most powerful tool that he uses. It is the ability to accuse people before God. And Jesus disarms him and exposes him for the sham that he is. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine a conversation between God and Satan. Arguing about Mark Vrogup. Imagine the conversation goes something like this. Satan, Mark doesn't love you. He doesn't love you any more than I do. He hates you. And you want to know how I know that he hates you, God? I can prove it to you. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of the way that Mark Vrogup has disobeyed your law and disregarded what you have said. He doesn't want you to rule and reign over his life. It's a sham. He doesn't believe in you. It's just all a mistake. He hates you just like I do. And everything that's flowing from his heart is just his way to use you to get what he wants. He has violated your will. He has sinned against your law. He's filled with sin and crimes. And God says, give me the record. Satan throws the record at him, and God pulls the record of Mark Vrogup, and imagine me standing right in the courtroom watching this display between the accuser and the God whose soul, who holds my soul in the palm of his hands. And God looks at the record of Mark Vrogup, and as he opens it, he smiles. And he looks at Satan and says, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. It's a blank sheet of paper. Oh, there was some stuff here, but it's not there anymore. And I don't know what you're talking about, Satan, because Mark Vrogup has never sinned against me. And the tragedy of that moment in my heart is that I know that that isn't true. And the grace of that moment is that it's only true because of the person and work of Christ. And so when I stand before my God...
And so when I stand before my God, I know that the one confession that I have in life and death and the only thing that matters is that my record was filled with crimes against a holy God and the only way it was ever expunged or made clean was by the person and work of Christ. He's my hope. He's my confession. And by Him, the enemy lost his grip on me. And by God's grace, I am clean. My file is empty. And I am a forgiven man. My file is clean. Jesus canceled my sin debt. He released me from Satan's accusatory grip. It means that I have been set free. And if you don't understand the darkness of spiritual death, you don't know what it means that you've been set free. That's why you got to get the black canvas right. It's hard and as, as difficult, even as confusing as it is, that we look at it and we say, this canvas of spiritual death makes this life in me so much more glorious. And I would argue the blackness of the spiritual death creates joy beyond compare. Because I know that without Christ... I have no hope. Jesus moves us from death to life. All of this is expressed in the short little phrase in verse 13, and you were dead. You who were dead, God made alive together with Him. Here's what happened. When you receive Christ... You are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You're translated from the realm of Satan's accusatory grip where sin was a part of your heart and your soul. You're loosed from the guilt that he uses to condemn you and Jesus calls you a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.19 What Jesus does is He changes the thing that you can never change and no one can ever touch and no one can ever help you with apart from Him. He changes your heart. He took a darkened, alienated heart, a hostile will, a dead soul, and He breathed new life into it. He made you born again. He took all your trespasses, he forgave them, he assaulted them with his death, and he moved you from death to life. He brought you from a position of spiritual deadness, and he breathed life by the Spirit in you, such that now you were born again, and you were moved from the kingdom of darkness now to the kingdom of light. He made you a different person, as different as living people and dead people. You look the same, you have the same body, but the reality of your life couldn't be any more different. The contrast, in fact, is bigger and more expansive than we can even get our minds around. Jesus called you forth from the tomb of your own heart. He called you from death to life. Last week I challenged you to live vicariously 
to live in light of the position that you've been given, what does this mean in this text? It means first that there is spiritual life. There is no spiritual life in any other. God may be drawing you to himself today. This Sunday isn't by accident. You're here for a reason. And today I want to call you to turn to Christ and put your faith in him by calling out to him in prayer and saying, Jesus, I need you to move me from death to life. My record is full and I need you to expunge it today. And my prayer is that there will be people today in the parking lot, in your car, maybe even right now, where God by His Spirit opens your eyes and you see this for the first time. And it's like a gleaming jewel on the backdrop of the sin of your own heart. And today would be the day where you say, yes, I turn to Christ. The second thing is that celebrating this position then becomes the basis for all obedience. Meaning that the reason that you obey is not because of obligation or because you improve upon God's love or somehow God loves you more. Obedience rather flows from an understanding of all that, of what God has done for us in Christ. It means that the more that you understand the beauty and the contrast of death to life, the more you want to give your heart and life to Him and say, this truth I will die for and this idea I will live for. True obedience comes from the overwhelming understanding of God's grace to us in the person of Jesus. And finally, it means this. It means that we need to live like who we are. Hear me. Since we have this victory, Paul says, seek those things that are above. If we're new men and women, Colossians 3.12, then we ought to live like it. Meaning that we need to decide... I'm done living like I'm spiritually dead when I'm really spiritually alive. I need to see the temptations in my life, all those strong and real. I need to see them as though those things have been declared powerless over me, and I don't have to do that anymore. I can be a new creature. I can have new thoughts, a new heart, a new life. I can have a new marriage, a new relationship with my kids. I can take Christ and have Him live in and through all of those arenas. And by definition, I don't have to serve sin. Am I going to struggle? Am I going to be perfect? Yes, I'm going to struggle. And no, I'm not going to be perfect. But it means that I have an intercessor who has changed my heart and changed the orientation of my life that now I belong to Jesus. And therefore, your file is clean, you've been set free. Beloved, we need to live like it. Beloved College Park, we have been brought from death to life. So, risen Christ, here we stand in your power, not arrogantly saying things that aren't true or we hope to be true or somehow are about us. We say, this is all about you, Christ, and we have nothing apart from you. And so today, would you birth people into your kingdom, cause people even this very moment to feel the very call of God upon their hearts to turn from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness from being your enemy to being your friend and help those of us who embrace this truth to live like the people we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.